Hello, listeners. My name is Tashara, and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Ryan Burke. Ryan is EY's global private leader. He started his career at EY within transaction services and has accumulated over 20 years of transaction and client advisory expertise since. He holds a degree in accounting from the University of Oklahoma, where he is a board member. Ryan is also involved in nonprofit work and is passionate about eradicating child illiteracy and promoting inclusiveness. Ryan, how are you doing today? Sorry, how are you? I'm doing great. So let's kick things off. And uh, you've been at EY for quite a while now. Could you please tell us more about how you rose through the ranks and found yourself in the role that you're in today? Sure, and it's, it really is uh, great to join you, uh, Tashara. So my career journey is uh, similar in some ways, but not too similar to a lot of people in the professional services uh, industry. I started my career because I, I really, I love the idea of helping advise companies. My dad was an entrepreneur growing up and I always felt like he could, and he did use a lot of outside advisors and I, it, it was really intriguing to me. And so when I graduated from the University of Oklahoma, I, I was fortunate enough to get a job with Eddie White. And I actually joined at the time, we only had a couple service lines, audit and tax. So I joined our audit practice. A couple of years into that, I realized I wanted to do more things. And I, we were starting a fledgling M&A practice, merger and acquisition practice. And that sounded pretty intriguing to me. So I was uh, one of our original employees back in the mid nineties into that practice. And so you know, from there, I, I really enjoyed it. I actually got hired by a private equity firm. So I worked at a private equity firm for about five years, focusing on consumer private companies and fast growing companies. And then EY recruited me back around 2004, 2005. I made partner at a really young age, fortunately. And what I realized, I started working with private equity firms that I really liked. And my firm asked me to take on some consumer companies, uh, big companies, Walmart and really Clark Tyson. And before you knew it, I was asked to do or become our global uh, consumer leader for our transaction practice. But all along the time I was working with our middle market, focus on middle market, which uh, we've gone through a number of name changes. And the firm asked me to you know, do things in the Americas and then globally within our transaction practice. And then just a couple of years ago, they asked me to lead this. But at the time, it wasn't EY private, Shara. It was a focus on our middle market, but we brought a bunch of pieces of our firm together, really to take advantage uh, of all of our clients that decided to stay uh, private, you know, for longer and for life. And we've got about 200,000 clients uh, in that space and because of the amount of capital that was out there. So we really put a laser focus on, you know, advising our clients and giving them the right client experience for private. So that's a long-winded way to the journey that we've been on. Great. And a very interesting one at that. And I'm sure there is no typical day as EY's global private leader, but could you tell us more about the role itself and what it sort of involves on a daily basis? Sure. You're right. There's no typical, and I, I still serve some of our largest clients, uh, so I still do some m and work that's out there. So I'd say a typical day would include talking to clients about current projects that we have going on and working with our internal client teams, as well as external uh, partners that we've got. We do, we have a partnership with YPO as an example. So yesterday I met with their uh, global CEO about different things that we can do with their network. We've got a very large focus on entrepreneurship, private equity, family businesses, et cetera. So working with our teams really to make sure our strategy is laser focused in terms of how we're serving our clients, but also how we're finding the best clients in the world and making sure we we get there. So it's a it's a big mix of working with clients 
our and then our internal teams and then teams around the world, making sure that they have an appreciation of our strategy and what we want to be, how we want to be advising clients in this space. That's great. And you mentioned earlier about your focus on consumer and retail. And Mm -hmm. this is one of the industries that has unfortunately been one of the hardest hit by COVID-19. And a large part of your work involves in advising some of the largest players in this industry. So how do you personally think that businesses can build resilience in challenging times such as these? What's interesting is the, the consumer industry had started going through a fundamental shift several years ago in terms of how consumers buy, where they consume, what types of products, what was a race to get to billion dollar brands and reach around the world became people wanted to buy differently, but they wanted to buy different things. So this, the fundamental shift happened, I'd say before COVID. Now what's interesting with COVID along with a lot of things, what it did is accelerate the change that was starting to happen in a meaningful way. So people were already obviously buying things online, but you know, it accelerated at a monumental clip because that was their only choice. But people also started to realize that there's, because of that, they have a vast their opportunity to buy vastly different types of products and things that are either important to them because it's a lower cost and the same value or something that's just more personal to them whether that's organic foods or something that has a sustainable background you look at some of the brands that have you know been created over the last several years people are realizing that they you know can do better by consuming different things. And so that fundamental shift is significant. And we, we believe that that shift is going to actually be on hyperdrive, continue over the next several years as companies, you know, really start focusing in on what ESG means to them, how they transform their business. That's really interesting. I think it's also something that a lot of people have seen materialize in their own lives. And it's been reported that global CEO confidence uh, on a more positive note has returned to pre-pandemic levels with 60% of CEOs confident about their growth prospects over the next three years. What do you think can be done to further increase this confidence? Yeah, we, we have seen just in the last probably three to six months, and I bet that number is even up higher if you were to poll even today versus two months ago. Uh, And there's a couple of things driving that confidence. One is the capital that's available in the world today is, is it's unsurpassed. We've never seen anything like it. I think globally, there's uh, about to be 24 to $28 trillion of stimulus dollars that are out there. And that's, you know, helping economies get through the pandemic, but it's also being created to help economies transform from an ESG perspective. So it's creating significant opportunity. So I, I actually think even though we've got record levels of confidence and capital out there. We believe that this momentum and economies around the world are going to continue to really outpace anything that we've seen before. Great. And to sort of build upon that more, Global M&A has experienced record levels in quarter three this year. Are you bullish about this growth trajectory within the near future? Yeah, we, because of the capital and M&A is really fueled by capital and leverage in its most simplicity that's out there. But what also is feeds that is the confidence that you mentioned earlier, Tashar, that confidence coupled with the capital that's available and the leverage that's still available today is really fueling M&A. Now, on top of those three things, there's a couple other things that are making companies really look at their own strategy. And you've seen some significant announcements just recently. There's technology disruption, the consumer behavior that we've talked about, but also ESG, you know, companies are going to be on a path that they've got to transform how they've been doing things. And some companies that were created recently have already been on that trajectory. There's a lot of 
companies, very large companies that have been doing certain things for a while. And it's going to take them, it's going to take a lot of capital for them to transform. And it's going to take them a lot of time to transform. And M&A just helps fuel that, whether that's M&A because they're, they're, they see new opportunities to get into that, or it helps accelerate something that they've started. For the first time in my career, I'm seeing out, we've been on a bullish M&A run for a while, and I really think it's going to continue to increase over the next 18 months because of these things. Definitely. And looking over deal flow over the past few months, it's clear that M&A has indeed been the favored growth strategy for a lot of companies. Do you think that any other forms of inorganic growth will increase in popularity? Yeah, there's there's a lot of different things going on when you when you talk about the what's you know popular with M&A and what the growth strategy. If we go back to capital, that's what fuels it. And companies have today more variety of a larger variety of capital available to them than they've ever had. When you look at public, just talk about between public companies and private companies, there's 55% fewer public companies to, today than there were 20 years ago. And that that trend has been sort of a gradual decline and we expect that that's going to continue. But, and the reason it's going to continue is that just there's more capital available. So companies don't have to go public to either provide some sort of liquidity to them or their shareholders and, or raise capital to grow. Mm -hmm. And so with that capital that's out there, there's private equity, which for the most part didn't exist in any sort of wholesome way 20 years ago. That's, that's a very institutionalized, well-known form of capital. And now there's dozens, if not a hundred different forms of private equity firms and private capital, which is only one angle. I think we've, we're up to about $6 trillion of private equity capital available out there today. What's interesting is there's uh, more than or almost $10 trillion of capital available within family offices. And that's something that's not often talked about. And so when you look at family enterprises in the family offices behind them, they are, they've been on a trajectory to either monetize liquidate, sell, but, but they've got a lot of capital as well. And so when you combine these forces, it's significant uh, in terms of how much capital we expect family office capital to far outpace private equity capital over the next 10 years. Okay. And this is something we touched upon a little bit earlier. And the pandemic has acted as a great catalyst for furthering ESG efforts by companies. How has this manifested within private and family enterprises in particular? It's a good question. And I'd say part of this is a geographic question. Where you're at in, in the UK, and I believe in Western Europe, I think you all have been at the forefront in terms of companies focusing in around ESG and making it critically important. And that's picking pace now up around the world. Certainly, we've seen it in the US. We're starting to see it in the Asia pack. And when you focus in on just family businesses, family businesses that have been around second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation, that is all about sustainability. So they've always been focused on sustainability. Now, this is a different lens on what that looks like. So I think they, the family enterprise wants to be around, for the most part, generations to generations. And so I think they started seeing the importance of this sooner and faster than anybody else. When you look at, you know, I think 64% of the companies that are out there are now starting to report. I think it was 8% of family businesses are actually starting to report around their sustainability progress. And you saw coming out of COP26 recently, for the first time, leaders, governments, and regulators around the world are, have decided that they will have a common set of metrics to report. Prior to that, and by the way, we're still not quite there yet, they've just agreed to it, which is significant. The ability for 
companies to report on a common basis is going to allow for far more trans, uh, transparency. It's also going to allow for people to really compare and say, okay, who's doing better than others? And that is a significant, significant milestone that was reached. Great. That's a really interesting insight. And going into next year, the outlook for the retail and consumer industry is, is very positive. What do you see as some of the potential trends that will become especially prominent? I think some of the trends um, that will accelerate some of the things we've talked about is this technology disruption will continue to be significant trends, how consumer companies transform into different things that are important to their clients. There's so many examples of unicorns that have come out because they're focused on engaging with their consumer on a personal level, virtually impossible other than mainstream advertising over the last 20 to 30 years. Now it's very possible due to technology that consumer companies, retail companies, they can actually engage personally with you. They can understand your buying habits. They can understand where you live, what's important to you at a very local personal level that has never existed before. And so companies can truly, and they need to adapt to what that means to them. And again, if you go back to, that means something different to everybody. It could be low cost. It could be a number of things. So that technology description system is number one in terms of what I, what's out there and what's driving. And that's going to continue to force companies to evolve. They're going to need to raise capital to get there. They're going to, they're going to be probably doing M&A to accelerate these things. Those are significant trends that we've seen. For sure. And we have discussed the opportunities of this paradigm shift, but what do you think are potentially some of the challenges with this increase in digitization? There's certainly a lot of challenges. It sounds great to say you're going to transform your business. Transformation is hard. It takes a lot. You know, it takes a lot of time. When we advise clients on what that journey looks like, there's everything from the back office in terms of how you actually literally make uh, a product all the way through to how you report on it to your stakeholders and then everything in between. That takes a lot of time. Understanding supply chains and understanding what that looks like, where you're doing business, how you're doing business is important that's out there. So I, I, those are significant trends that are only going to be accelerated, but it's the, the challenges that you ask about are capital will be one. There is capital available, but companies do need to either raise it, find it, and be able to get that. They've got to have patience with their stakeholders that's sitting out there and they have to truly spend time learning what their their customer wants. And so those are the probably the three things that are really going to drive or the biggest challenges that are out. Definitely. And we discussed a little bit earlier about sort of the opportunities with the amount of capital with family offices. And historically speaking, family businesses are a little bit reluctant when it comes to diluting equity in their companies. And only 38% of the world's largest family-run enterprises have actually used private equity or are currently using it as a source of capital. Do you think that this is something that needs to be changed? And if so, how? It's a great question because I think that that gets down to a personal family and what their you know, overall enterprise, what their office, what they want to do. And does a second generation, fourth generation, you want to continue doing what they're doing or do they want to get into something differently. I'm helping a family office today sort of reinvent themselves for trans, transfer transformation from Gen 2 to Gen 3. And what was really interesting about the work that we've been doing with them, and we've been it's a, it's a large family office, is that Generation 2 had created a lot of capital and they diversified in a significant way. They were heavily focused on one industry, which is not unusual for a family business. 
And, and part of that diversification was going around the world and looking at certain markets and, you know, certain industries, et cetera. Gen 2 came in and through a significant amount of work, et cetera, through a lot of different family members, they've said, hey, there's certain geographies and or industries that we don't want to be in, but there's, and there's other things that we want to be more in. And that dynamic is very real. So when you ask about private capital, some will say, hey, we want to keep doing the same thing. We really like the trajectory. And some will say, we want to do things very differently. And private equity, is certainly available today. And some some businesses need capital more than others. And so I think that's what drives that number, that 38% that you mentioned. And I think that's going to be a journey. And there's some generation, there's some families that want to fully transit and get out or need capital. And there's others that don't. So I, I, I think that's an interesting number, but I think there's a, when you peel the onion back, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Definitely. And sort of focusing on entrepreneurialism, a brand that I'm sure many millennials and fitness enthusiasts are familiar with is Gymshark. And its founder, Ben Francis, was named EY's Entrepreneur of the Year last year within the UK. What do you think are some of the factors that have allowed this company to reach unicorn status within the UK? It's a great, great question. And Ben has founded a great company. And it was really cool to see him win the UK Entrepreneur of the Year last year. To answer your question, how they got to unicorn status, it gets to some of the things we've talked about. I think Ben has created a a social media platform that is unlike any any anyone else in the industry, and he's learned how to engage with his customer at a personal level. So when you look at what that means, he's operating in a in an industry that is hyper competitive in terms of the different brands that are out there, but he's learned how to reach out to that. And I think one of the things that drives a unicorn status is people look at that and they say, "What? Oh, it's not just because you." this for this the apparel industry it's can you actually now leverage that platform you built in a number of different ways getting to repeatable scalable the famous example is amazon started as a bookstore but that's really not what they were they, they were an online the digitizing that's out there and obviously we know the story between amazon but these companies that are getting unicorn status is because they've not only learned how to disrupt but they've figured out ways that they can multiply different platforms very interesting indeed. And finally, Ryan, do you have any advice to give to university students? Yeah, I, I, I love engaging with students that are on their journey. And I've got a, a high school senior who will be going to university next year and a lot of nephews that are in university. And I've certainly recruited hundreds, if not thousands of university students over my career. And I keep it very simple, engaging, finding something you're really interested in, being not afraid to try new things, number one. Number two is is passionately engaged. And I think those two things are, are truly a secret sauce. I don't think it's incredibly difficult to be incredibly successful if you do those two things that's out there. And, and that engagement piece is so critical. That's great advice. I'm sure that our listeners appreciate your insights and can take a lot away from this episode. It has been a pleasure having you here today and thank you for taking the time to speak to us. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes to come. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan.